Hello, and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and I'm very excited to have someone on the podcast. Not a lot of people claim to be big angel investors, but Forbes magazine calls Fabrice Grinda the number one angel investor in the world. Fabrice, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. So you were just telling me you normally are in New York City and you'll be there next week, but where are you working from home at the moment? So right now I'm in Turks and Caicos. I'm not sure home is the proper way, the proper definition or description, but I rented uh, an Airbnb and uh, spending the week here. And uh, it's great to be working from and, and, and frankly, I actually have a life setup where I usually have this hybrid lifestyle anyway, even in non-COVID times, where I spend like a month in New York, right, where it's socially, artistically, intellectually super intense. But if you're doing, you're not thinking. And then I spend a month in a more quiet place. I'm actually still working, obviously, in those places. I'm still doing Zoom calls and emails, et cetera. But by virtue of not being socially and professionally super busy all the time, I take the time to reflect, to write, to read, to think. And this year, instead of being you know a month on, a month off, has really been mostly not in major cities yeah. and, and mostly on the reflective side. And I've actually used that opportunity to write a lot more, to launch my own streaming show, uh, playing with unicorns on venture and startups uh, every Thursday at noon, and, and redesign my blog, and, and to do all the things that I've really meant to do, yeah. but they were neither urgent or super high priority. And so they, they were in that to-do list of things that never gets done. Well, I think we've seen that with our own portfolio companies too, and even large corporates and everybody that COVID is an accelerant on digitizing whatever your strategy was. I was talking for years about doing this, interviewing you and everybody else that I think is worthy to listen to in Silicon Valley Bank Studio in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I just never got to it. So I, I think it's good that, that we're making those changes. But so let me give you a quick introduction and then I'm gonna have you tell us about your history more and what you're doing today. So Fabrice Grinda um, is the co-head of FJ Labs. Um, prior to becoming a prolific investor, he was CEO of OLX, which was classified in emerging markets. Um, very big hit before that. He founded a company and was CEO of Zingi, which he led to 200 million in annual revenues, profitable within four years. So that's somebody you could uh, take some advice from on how to do that. Um, and uh, it's got a lot of experience in emerging markets and even in investing outside of the core Silicon Valley, New York, London, even Berlin, Paris location. So a lot of interesting experience there of his, he's invested $284 million. So beyond his exits, he's invested $284 million into 571 companies, which yielded 193 exits. And the drum roll IRR was? 62% a year over the last 22 years, probably net realized. So including all the losses and it's cash on cash realized return, which is probably you know in the top 0.1% of all VCs ever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting, and, and you know, and some of some of these include Alibaba. I mean, there's a couple of well-known names that would make up for, you know, probably a lot of bad bets. But Fabrice, why don't I shut up and why don't you tell us about? Um, we could talk about anything and everything you want, but I'm curious to hear this sort of anti-VC mentality of, you know, you invest over two Zoom meetings or you take board seats, or you don't, or you follow, you lead. 
why don't you give us the basic thesis of how you're different and what you're doing? I'll get to this thesis in a second, but it really you know, comes from what I was doing as an angel. Right? I was always an investor while I was an entrepreneur. And because by virtue of being a visible consumer-facing internet CEO, a lot of other people come and approach you and ask for money and advice. And early on, I didn't really have money to give them, but ultimately, as I had exits, started investing in them. And But the thing is, if you're a tech CEO, you're super busy, right? So as I was running OLX, it's 5,000 employees, 30 countries, 350 million uniques a month. But I'm like, you know, I actually like helping other entrepreneurs. I like investing in them. I like putting my money where my mouth is. And, and I think I actually, if I can articulate my thinking and, and my processes, it makes me a better entrepreneur. And at the same time, if I understand that the latest trends of the market is very useful, it's very useful to me um, as, a, as a founder to see what other people are thinking and doing, et cetera. But that said, I can't take too much time. And so while I was a founder, uh, I was like, hey, if I want to be an angel investor, I'm only going to do it in categories I understand innately because I'm operating in them. So let's focus only on marketplaces. And I can't be spending that much time doing analysis. So let's create a strategy and a set of heuristics that allows me to evaluate companies really quickly. At that time, is one meeting in the meeting and say, I'm in, I'm not, and why? Now, no. the <laughs> and, and it worked really well. Now, I, it allowed me to iterate and, and get up with the. Also, another thing is, well, a lot of uh, moving parts here, but like, first of all, having a specific a specificity or a focus is super helpful in the sense that it, it leads to better branding. So you're known as the marketplace entrepreneur, so other or investors, so other people, you start seeing all the deals. Because you see all the deals, you get to refine your heuristics and you get, your, you get so many at-bats to become a, a smarter decision maker on the category. And then the, which in turn leads to better deal flow and improving the quality of the deal. So there's like this virtuous circle or network effects in having a specificity. Now, in terms of um, when I sold OLX, it was 2013, already made over 100 investments, very successful. I've been building companies. I'm like, okay, I like building companies. I like investing in companies. Let's create a structure that allows me to do both things. And that's what ultimately FG Labs became. It's a hybrid venture fund and startup studio. Didn't really start in 2013. I mean, the genesis of it, the formal creation was 2016. But really, the, the, the genesis was 2013. And at that point in time, I'm like, okay, what is it that I liked as an entrepreneur from interacting with VCs? What is it that I didn't like? And I realized that very often the VCs that we'd be talking to would use time as a means of due diligence. And, and they, they also didn't seem to have like the conviction behind their beliefs. I would meet them and it would go really well, but then I wouldn't hear from them. Or uh, it would be another meeting three weeks later, another meeting three weeks later, and like from the first meeting to the final part of meeting to a term sheet, it would be four months, six months. And, and those processes, you know, didn't make any sense to me. Now, I understand why the VCs do it. A, if they don't like you, they still would rather not pass because they would like to keep the optionality of changing their mind in the future. And if someone tells you, oh, this month I'm 100K, next month I'm 125, the month after 150, waiting three months, of course, gives you the time to see if, if they deliver on what they promise. But that said, as an entrepreneur and as a founder, the the uncertainty of when you're going to be, whether or not they're interested, whether and, and the funding you're going to get is actually painful. And so I'm like, you know, I want to do the opposite of that. I want to be able to decide very quickly. And by virtue of operating in a category, which I understand, I think I can actually 
evaluate companies very poorly. I'm more than happy to share my evaluation criteria. But that what's changed from before used to be one meeting and we would decide now I've actually, we, we get a hundred deals a week. So we need to get, go through the deal flow and many of them were out of scope, et cetera. So first, the first call is taken by some another member of the team for the most part. And then I'll take a second call for the ones that seem interesting. And on these two one-hour calls over a one-week period, we'll decide if we're in or not. And most often, I will tell the founder on the call whether we invest or not and why. With full transparency, like if I don't, if I think the valuation is too high, or if I think the pitch is not really good, or if the like a, transparency on on the reasoning and what would need to change for me to change my mind. Yeah, because of course we mostly say I think, no. <laughs> I think a lot of VCs that were not operators may not actually have the understanding and compassion to realize that um, being very Japanese polite, smiling, even if you're telling them horrible news. That's not helpful. And in fact, it's destroying value that the only currency that unfunded entrepreneur has is time. So to play games, to play games with, uh, I want the optionality of coming back once Sequoia and everybody else is in, um, is quite damaging to the entrepreneur's actual time, um, you know, on doing that. So tell us a little bit about, um, so historically and today and moving into the future, what is your geographical uh, focus or open area. I think that's that's not typical either. The, you know, I never set boundaries of where we were looking to do deals, but I thought through, okay, where do the excess come from? Where is value being created? Now, by virtue of being so visible in the, the emerging markets through OLX, I mean, OLX is 350 million uniques. It's the largest classified site in Russia and Ukraine, Romania, all of Eastern Europe and Brazil and all of Latin America and India and Pakistan, I started getting a lot of deal flow in these geographies. And as I saw the ecosystems grow up there, I started investing there as well. Now, our geographic allocation is still 70% US. Um, most of what we do is business model innovation in the US and 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 we've done really well here. Then 20% Western Europe and the Nordics. And these days about 10% Brazil and India. And we're only now venturing into slightly smaller markets but where the ecosystems are growing up. So Pakistan, Mexico, Colombia, Nigeria, uh, Kenya, and South Africa. We used to invest in Turkey and Russia as well, but both countries, uh, the political decisions uh, made by the leaders, Erdogan and Putin, I've, I've created a negative macro environment, which we felt would create a negative micro environment for startups to be in, a, to operate in, and to get exits in. So we mostly have shied away from these two geos, even though we used to be rather active in them. Now, the one commonality in the countries that are not Western Europe, the US, and the Nordics is that they're typically large. Um, in Brazil, where you have a population of 210 million people that are reasonably wealthy, you have a fully blown ecosystem where you can get everything from seed funding to A and Bs to later stage funding. The issue with the smaller markets, you know, like Chile, where we don't really operate, is that even though you can get the seed funding, and if you do break out, the tiger globals of the world will find you once you're at 100 million revenues or a million value. The problem is that A, B, uh, there's really a series A B crunch in the smaller markets and the emerging markets, and there's it, that's not where we play, and so we can't help you there. And the and so the main recommendation for the founders there is you know move to Brazil or the U.S. or whatever, or target the larger markets, not not the domestic markets. And now there's been a few breakouts, like in Colombia, you've had um, 
Rappi became so big by going across Latin America in a category that's large enough that now there's an ecosystem emerging there. But for the most part, we've done larger uh, markets in, in emerging markets, which is why it's like India, Brazil, Nigeria, Pakistan, you know, where, where hundreds of millions of people in the countries where you can actually justify building large, larger companies. What's your perception of Southeast Asia? Like so you know, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, yeah. Thailand, Viet, you know, Philippines. Yeah, of these, Indonesia is, is probably the most interesting. It's the largest and from a population perspective. And there's a number of companies that are really emerging. And, and obviously, OLX is a big operator there. We, we also bought the largest local um, e-commerce and, and, and marketplace. The, the issue, the reason we've shied away is in a country like the U.S., the, the winner is the one who, the best, who raises the most money, who's the best operator, and it's usually the best teams. And in these markets, often there's a regulatory component of the people that are better connected. That, so there are a number of families that own uh, essentially big chunks of the economy. And if you're not politically aligned with them somehow, perhaps your license gets revoked. So we, we've considered like investing in a, in a Expedia for Indonesia many, many years ago. The problem is the team that was probably the best to win was not the team that the government granted the license to operate. And the fact that you even need a good license to operate to me is, is, is annoying. And because we're not on the ground and we don't actually know the nuances, we don't know who's in or who's out, et cetera, we, we've been more careful. Now, as these countries modernize, corruption becomes less of an issue, we'll, we'll revisit. And we actually have looked at deals in, in categories that are less regulated, but we're more careful in, in, in these geos. And in a few categories, like food delivery, we totally look at it. I mean, food delivery is a large enough category that would work in every country, you know, like, uh, so the, delivery, the, hero, the delivery yeah. hero equivalent right. models in the world, the, the Gojacks of the world would look at as well. But most other categories, you know, we'd be more careful of. Okay. And you already touched on it with your focus on exchanges, which is something you understand a lot, marketplaces, which you understand really well. But um, when, you, when you're investing in so many companies, it's such a one call, two call, boom. Um, how do you add value to the startup after, you know, at least you didn't waste your time? The, the way we add value is threefold, and it kind of depends on the stage you're at. If you're really early, because I've, had, I've seen so many companies try to build liquidity, your fundamental questions are like, sorry, the supplier that I'm in, do you, what should your rate be? Should it be 1%, 5%, 20%, 50%? I, I can help you think through how to measure elasticity of supply and demand, what the correct business model is, et cetera. So that's for the pre-seed companies. And only a few or low percentage of the companies we talk to actually want this help or need it. Most of them are a little bit later stage than that. The, the companies that are later, beyond the fact that we're super transparent what we think they're doing well, what we think they're not doing well and thoughtful, the main value add for us is we help them fundraise. So because we're not leading, we're not pricing, we're not taking board seats, we don't have ownership requirements. So we do, we play nice with all the VCs in the world. So every uh, eight weeks or so, we sit down with a hundred of the top VCs in the world. And that's like across every stage, across every industry, across every geography. So it could be, 
you know, whatever the first round capitals or slow or floodgate or uncork in the US at seed, it'll, it'll be like whatever Greylock, Sequoia, Andreessen, Bessemer, Jill Catalyst. I mean, every name in the A and the B rounds in the US, it'll be all the relevant players all around the world and we share deal flow. And they will invite us to co-invest with them in the marketplaces they're looking at at the later stages because they want a perspective. But perhaps more importantly for them, all of our C deals need an A, all of our A deals need a B, all of our B deals need a C. And so we vet extraordinarily high quality deal flow for them that's completely differentiated. So they love it. Now the founders love it because they get funded. They So once we invest, we work with the founders about six months before they want to go out to the next raise on their deck, we walk through and we map out what are the correct VCs for them and we make the intros. Now, in terms of helping beyond that, it's really whatever the founder, it's on an as demanded basis. So we don't actually reach out and say, what can we do to help you? It's if you come and have a specific request, we will always grant it. And, the, and, and by the way, if we think you're not ready for a raise or your metrics don't justify an intro to Sequoia, I will also tell you that. So right. we don't just send all the companies. We actually send the ones we think are the best for each VC, having eliminated conflicts and only sending them at the right stage in the right terms. And so we'll mostly help fundraising. We have a head of platform, uh, but our platform team, of course, we're, we don't have, you know, most half the capital that's been deployed in the company is my partner and mine. And mine. Um, we don't really have enough assets under management to have a fee structure where we can have like headhunters, et cetera. And so other people will focus on recruiting. We're like, you know what? We're going to almost exclusively do fundraising. And we, yeah. because we have these relationships, we can help you fundraise. And it's a massive time saver for the founders and they love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it makes sense. And with with just, you said half the money in the fund is you and, and your co-founder, Jose. What? Yeah. So, so it's a bit less than that. It's probably forty percent. Today we've deployed two seventy, and maybe one hundred twenty of that is our money. Okay. And what are the what what do the LPs look like? Without saying the name of an LP, are they sure founders that you backed in the past? Are they pension funds, endowments, insurance companies? Or is it the usual suspects, or is it more the unusual suspects? Oh, completely unusual suspects and completely unusual suspects because I never set out to build a venture fund. In, in 2013, in fact, I, I, when I started building or holding companies that was in, to invest in companies and build companies, we considered like, oh, do, we talked to a bunch of normal, usual suspects about whether or not they'd be interested in investing and what we're doing. And the answer was no. I mean, the idea that we would do limited due diligence, decide so quickly, in every geography, in every category, in every industry, even though it's specific by business model, that it was not something that they could get comfortable with. Even though we'd been very successful angel investors, they didn't give us the credit, I think, that we deserved as, as venture capitalists. And, and, and I understand that venture capitalists typically have a very different approach, but in this case, we're doing the exact same thing as you know, larger scale investors than we were as angels. So I think that the, the, it made sense or the credit we should have been given, but they weren't comfortable with the approach. And, and so we're like, okay, it's fine. We're happy to invest our own money. But what happened is over the next, so the first three years, you know, we didn't raise any external capital. All, all the traditional like pension funds, the university endowments were like, no, no, this is crazy and too scary despite the returns. Um, it's not for us. And, you know, we're going to pass at every stage, you know, the geography and every industry, et cetera. But a few years in, a number of, I'd say, strategics who like marketplaces, who either are 
marketplaces themselves and they they were looking for companies they could eventually perhaps acquire and 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 other strategics from outside of the us were like hey we own marketplaces or we run marketplaces or we be disrupted by marketplaces and seeing what's happening in the us what the trends in the us are and where the world is heading is really useful to us either to adapt these ideas or acquire some of the companies etc and so all of a sudden we little by little i mean we were first lp was one company uh telenor which is a oh, the yeah. largest telco in, in, in norway and they're very big operators um in mostly in southeast asia actually to to your earlier point they they own the largest mobile operator in Myanmar. they're in pakistan they're in malaysia etc and so i'd been working with them for many years because they had done a jv with my biggest competitor when i was running olux to attack us in the in the emerging markets a company called shipstead and later we fought a big war shipstead so they were 50 50 shipstead and us we we bought them we merged 51 for us 49 for them at that point telling we're at 25 percent and as part of an ultimate exit deal they ended up with the ownership of the core classified assets and marketplaces in southeast asia in malaysia and Myanmar, and a lot of these countries and so they were also in financials operators of marketplaces and they're like hey we'd love to understand what's going on in the us and 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 perhaps bring some of the ideas or adapt some of the ideas for, for their markets and and so they became our, our sole lp for fund one with external capital oh, okay um giving us 50 million um that's in 2016 we deployed the capital in 2016 and 2017 and and 2018 um other strategics started saying hey we'd like to have the same deal we'd like the same insights like what is going on in, in property prop tech what's going on in, in recruiting what's going on in cars or whatever and so all of a sudden a number of other strategics and or family offices linked to companies that were being disrupted by marketplaces started investing. So now fund two is a $175 million fund, again, of external capital. So in both cases, I'm not including our capital. That's on top of that. And obviously it's a large percentage of the capital we deploy. And so fund two is 175 million, less than 25 LPs, and essentially all either family offices of companies being disrupted by uh by tech and by marketplaces specifically and or people interested in acquiring marketplaces uh i don't know which names i'm allowed to share or not i'm talonor of course is again uh a a large lp yeah the well i think you may know i wrote a book called masters of corporate venture capital and i really studied the their unique interests and the business intelligence they get you know is often more interesting for them you know if you're seeing everything in a category that's impacting their business. You know, an entrepreneur coming into your office today on or on that Zoom call with you, that's a fuzzy thumbnail of what the future looks like. Wait, I just lost the audio. No, no, no. I I okay. I, I, I was making comments so we don't have people walking behind me all the time. <laughs> oh, okay. No, 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 that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but I think that um from the corporate perspective, um, to see the startups that are coming in and pitching you and me today gives them like a, a thumbnail view into what the future is going to look like. And they don't want to jump off of every bridge. If someone says, hey, jump off this bridge and do this, that you're also observing over time what is working, what is not working. Absolutely. They, they're interested in seeing the flow and then, but obviously they don't do anything until something has reached massive scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that the the Got free it. business intelligence with the um, prospect of a, what 62% IRR on it makes it like zero cost R&D, 
you know, you could spend a lot of money on McKinsey where you spend some time, or you could spend time on FJ Labs, which is probably giving you better optics into these areas that that you you totally command. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's not ideal because these are not investors that you know their strategies may change, their willingness to be in here. Like, so I would actually like to have the type of capital that's committed for like three, four, five funds. Uh, also, we're still under investing, right? Like, so I back tested with the strategy we use. How much could we deploy every year? It's probably 100 million, 125 million a year, and we're deploying 50, right? Like, so we could probably be a 350 fund instead of being a 175 fund, but you know, it is what it is. So, so with it being what it is, what is your portfolio construction and check size? I know you've got pretty specific understanding of what you've done historically. I usually hear VCs tell you what they're going to do. They don't tell you what they did. <laughs> so first of all, there's no explicit desired portfolio construction. There's, I, I didn't start the saying, oh, I intend to invest in blah number of deals per year at blah stage, et cetera. The, the philosophy we've always had is if we see deals we like, we invest. If we don't see deals we don't like, we don't invest. And the, let, it, let the cards fall where they may. And so it leads to a fair amount of variability. And, and because we're not, we're look at every stage and every geography, it leads to a fair amount of variability year on year. Some years we'll do 100 deals. Some years we'll do 150 deals. Some years we'll do 75 deals. Some years we'll do mostly, we, we used to do only seed, seed extension and A, and then, and then some occasional later stage. But when every fund in the world started going later stage, I'm like, you know, we should be moving the other direction. So we added pre-seed starting in February, 2018, uh, that we, we hold that a higher standard or bar. So if we look at our um, historically what we've done, so again, so there's no, ex I, I'm getting closer because I'm, I'm probably going to share my screen. There, there's no explicit portfolio construction in terms of exactly what the fund should look like, what, how many deals should do, et cetera. And by the way, as a result of that, and because of our very specific following strategy, we we follow on for whatever fund we happen to be in at this point in time. So we don't actually reserve any capital for follow-on. Uh, we will evaluate follow-ons exactly the same way as we're evaluating a new investment, as though we were not investors, but knowing what we know now, would we want to invest or not at the deal terms presented? And if yes, we invest, if not, no. And if yes, and the current fund is out of money, the new fund will invest. And so we also tell these invest in every fund. Um, and by the, the way, stop. Yeah, can we stop yeah. on that for a second, Fabrice? The I, I find it odd that, um, I mean, I understand why. Most VCs conventional will say, if we funded a company out of fund 18, we're not going to put any money into that same company from fund 19. I'm kind of joking when I say, who we're talking about, who's on their 18th fund. But <laughs> I think that their, th their, their logic is that I don't want to uh, throw good money after bad, meaning I don't want to fund a sinking ship to prop up my, my, my carry and performance of my other one. I should basically let it die. From our perspective, we've come up with policies that say, um, if the company's performing well, um, it's not a lifeline. Um, there's, it, there, you know, this should be a reward of re-upping in my next fund. Um, that if we took a risk on a bunch of companies and now we're doubling down on our winners within that fund, we should be able to double down on their winners in that. I mean, that's that's part of the investment thesis is uh, yep. our latest fund has access to the winners of our my first two funds. Um, so, so to, to divorce that huge you know asset that we have, it's just throwing out 
part of the reason why you should invest it in the fund. Exactly. I, the the it, you need to trust us, obviously, to be objective. And we're like, look, we're going to evaluate every deal when there's a follow-on objectively. And if we think it's worth investing, we'll invest. If we don't think it's worth investing, we won't invest. And and we're not, you know, doing like value pr- protection by writing providers like like we. And by the way, we don't. On average, we don't do our follow-on. We we only follow on 25% of the cases uh, for a number of reasons. The main reason the companies are doing well, sometimes we feel we're overpriced. Uh, so we're actually not doubling down on our winner on our like the, the very best companies right. as, as most VCs are doing because we don't think on a risk adjusted basis it makes sense. Um, and and also because the products are too big, right? We, it's kind of like the capital constraints I mentioned earlier, where some one of our companies are doing so well. I think our, our Parada was like 50 million. Our entire fund per, deploy the entire amount of capital deployed per year is 50 million. You know, right. so it's like four and it's 500k and 100 deals, right? It's not we're not going to put all of it in one company, and so and so often we can't do it. Um, but but that's okay. And but you know, Fabrice, maybe what you should do is raise uh, another vehicle, and I'm sure you've thought of this. Raise a vehicle that says, look, our core fund when we're investing in pre-seed, seed, late seed, seed extension, pre-A stuff, these are really where the big hits are going to come from. This is where you get a 100x return, a 50x return. <laughs> I don't know what you made in Alibaba, but I'm sure it was phenomenal. Whereas yeah. we're now getting a different vehicle that says, we do have pro ratas, we do have optics. We, had, we knew this founder at his third, fifth company before doing this latest one. So we're going to be seeking to make a 3x return or so, maybe if we get lucky a 5x, 6x, sometimes a 1x and it's very unlikely to lose money in some of those deals it's illegal to say that to a prospective lp but um you know it might make sense to have a separate vehicle that's got a different culture, different set of rules and you're putting good money into those deals. So funny you should mention that. Uh I think for fun we're we're we still have like a year worth of deploying a fund uh, two. I mean, so fund three, I think we're doing exactly that. I think we're going to do a pre-seed to a funds and then uh, a an archangel fund where it'll be the very, either the late stage opportunities we see or the very best companies from where that we are following on from the, from, uh, from the prior funds that we'll follow on here because the, the returns profiles are different and we don't currently have enough capital to invest in those very best companies. And so I don't know exactly what the allocation split is. I mean, ideally in the future, I think I'd like to deploy 350. I have a 350 fund. So may, maybe, I don't know if it's 175, 175 or it's 150, you know, 200, something, you know, something in that range might be 125, 175, but I, I think your idea makes a lot of sense. And I think it's definitely the direction we're heading in under, and, and of course, presenting it that the returns profiles are going to be different. So actually let me share with you a few things. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm nope, going to make you the host, right? Uh, and by the way, for what I just said, I think, I think we, this it's 95% of probably the, the direction we're going in. We haven't decided to do it exactly yet, but I think so. So portfolio construction to date, um, 63% pre-seed seed, 28% A and B, 9% later stage. And I think in the future, I'll, I'll break that down better. Um, we're huh, 58% US and Canada from the deals, 25% Europe, 6% Brazil, 2% India, 9% other. Uh, and uh, check sizes, and I'll do it in the US, we're at 20, 220K pre-seed, 390k seed, 620k a, 
uh, 750k B and 1.32 million C. And the logic for these numbers um, is, first of all, we want to focus more on the earlier stage and the later stage, but we never want to compete for allocation with the lead. So these days, I'll say a typical C deal is a 3 million Rand where the lead is writing a 1.5 or $2 million check. By taking 390, we're, we're, we look like a big angel and we're not competing with them for the allocation. And so they, they see when us as doing, a friend. When you're doing pre-seed at 220,000 US, uh, what's the size of that round typically? Yeah, so, so in pre-seed, we may sometimes be the largest uh, check where it's a uh, million dollar round and it's mostly other angels. There are not many pre-seed funds, by the way. I mean, there's Amplify, there's a four, there's, you know, there's a few of them, but they're not very many. Most of the pre-seed rounds we see are like 20 angels writing 50K checks a pop. Uh, but, and, and even though we are, we may be the largest check, we make it very clear, like, look, don't see this as signaling, you know, this is not as though we're, we don't consider ourselves a lead, we just consider ourselves as the large angel, um, the, so, yeah, and we're so not going to take a board seat. Don't see it as negative signaling if you don't follow on, is that what you mean by signaling? Well, uh, more in the other direction, and in, in the if we're the if we commit to pre-seed check to twenty and a million rand, I don't want all the other angels to think, oh, these guys are leading; they're doing extensive due diligence, uh, they, oh. and, and, <laughs> and 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 just just pile on top of them. We're we're not typically we don't set we don't write term sheets; we join term sheets that are existing. We don't set prices; we're price takers, and uh, and so but. So, it, this is the one case where we may very well be the biggest check, and and and, and also the the, the pre-seed funds write 250k to 500k checks, so our checks are reasonably large there. That's the one category, but they also don't see us as competition. They there there's so little capital and pre-seed from traditional investors, they're happy to have us on board. And what do you what do you see typical for valuations? Have you seen a change in valuations with COVID, or good companies have? a big queue of investors that want to be back in them. What, what are you seeing in valuations in the US? And then it'd be really interesting to compare that to your global perspective, like sure. the same company with say a six or 8 million pre in Silicon Valley, it's got a 2 million pre in Sao Paulo. Let me uh, reshare my screen for a quick Share second. screen again, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll do it again. The so first of all, there is a norm or, or a, a range of expectations for what valuations look like. And, and those are reasonably well-defined. Let's see if I have one that's not, yeah, this one is a good one. It's, it's not specific to, uh, it's not specific to marketplaces. Um, so let's say that here, here are the cycles you go through when you're fundraising. So first you, you've, you, you have your idea, you go to the fool's friends and family money, the love money. You know, it's like zero to 250K, uh, valuations vary. The and to vary, in fact, significantly enough, it's really not worth mentioning what it is. It depends what you can negotiate with friends and family. Uh, pre seed round, where you're raising the million I just discussed, so 750K a million, the average is three to five pre. Um, and you're either so you have a you have a team. You may have an MVP. Maybe you don't have an MVP, and you're and you're going to be building it. And the idea, especially for the first few rounds, is it gets you to the next round. And so the idea is with that. In the case of marketplace, you get a seed round. A seed round probably means you have 10 to 50k in net revenues. And and by net revenues, if you're a marketplace, let's say doing 150k a month and you take 20%, that's 30k. That's the 30k net revenue. So the average marketplace these days that takes 20%. At seed would be doing 150k a month in GMV. They're raising, 
I, the average is really three and nine pre, but the, it's a range. It's two to four raised at six to 12. And it's a pretty big range because it depends. If you're a second time founder, you're going to commit a higher price. If you're growing quicker than, 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 than the norm, you're going to command a higher price. If you're particularly hot for whatever reason, you're going to command a higher price. Um, the idea is with that seed, you get to a Series A. Now, there's also a time expectation here. The idea is you go from C to Series A in 18 months. And, the, and that 18 month matters because it, we're kind of expecting you to quadruple in size in that and time period. not everybody period. hits that. Every founder says, and this is going to be followed by my Series A. And no, no, of course. Many companies don't raise the Series A. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, if I look at it, like the five-year survival rate of startups is about 7%. So in the US every year, there are 5,000 seed fund or startups that raise at least 500,000. Um, of these that raise a Series A, it's actually only 25%. That's at the market at large. Um, and, and of those that don't raise a Series A, like 95% fail. Of the, of, the, of the 25% that raise a Series A, about 40% raise a Series B. And of the 60% that don't raise a Series A, uh, Series B, sorry, about like 50% fail. Uh, so I, obviously, as you reach scale, you're more likely to reach profitability. You have lower failures. But if you walk this through all the way to the end for five years, you're at a 7% survival rate. So yes, most companies actually don't make it to the next round. But the expectation is not that you're going to be profitable from pre-C to C to C to A, or frankly, A to B. The idea is that you make it to the next round, frankly, until you get to the scale where you can become profitable. And that's like B onwards. And then you have to, you have a, you have a arbitrage of like further growth versus profitability, depending on the potential of the market. But let's say at A, these days you're raising five to 10 and 15 to 30 pre. And, and you're doing, let's say if you're a marketplace, you're doing 650k a month, you know, in, in, in GMV. So that's maybe 50 to 250k a month in net revenues. Um, if you're a SaaS business, I use these numbers as the net revenue number. Your your MRR would be your net revenue number here, um, and you'd commend these size of prices. Now, well, which for is, the very best. Is so, so what is what is net revenue slash MRR going? Well, on the problem is like is the, it, it, yeah, the problem is like looking at company. It, it's trying to make to compare companies in an apples apples basis, right? Like a a for a Series A company in the U.S., let's say let's say you're a marketplace, you do I'll make the math really easy. You may you, you do a, a million a month in GMV and you take ten percent. Your net revenue that your take your actual revenue is hundred k, and on that you have a margin. Typically in a marketplace, it's maybe seventy five. It's seventy five percent margin. So maybe you have seventy k net margin on hundred k net revenue on a million GMV. The thing is, if you're a SaaS business, you charge a monthly subscription fee. The equivalent of that million a month in sales, you know, GMV for a company that takes ten percent would probably be eighty or ninety k in monthly revenues because you have a ninety five percent margin on that. And so the net revenue numbers are probably the better ones to compare as you're if you're trying to do it across categories. Of course, I have a specific valuation matrix in my mind for different verticals. But I, as I made one that's across all different industries to share with the public, I thought maybe it would make sense to do it on a net revenue number more than anything else. You know, like if, oh, there's, yeah. an e-commerce, if there's an e-commerce company out there that's, re- that's doing 200K a month in revenues, how do you compare that? Uh, from, how do you think about that from valuation perspective? And by the way, many businesses have multiple 
components. They have a SaaS business and they have a non SaaS and they have a transactional business with different margin structure. And I put different multiples and different valuations of both of those. Which is absolutely correct. It, it annoys the hell out of me when some entrepreneur is banging on about their GMV revenues and trying to drive evaluation. And I'm like, I'm asking you to tell me the net, the net revenue. Exactly. And, we're, and they're actually dodging the question. Um, like, we're, yeah. we're going to get to the bottom of this thing. And, you know, also classically, you see a lot of companies are a services business that might not even attract venture financing. And now they make a product and they're trying to mix in the revenues of exactly. the old business and the new product. And, you know, you just got to be upfront about that and exactly. show people, you know, where you're getting to. I look, I'm going to look at independent unit economics for your, for different business lines and the different margin structure. And I'm not blending everything together. And it's not only for valuation. You need to know that to understand the capital requirements for the business. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and if your you know, primary thing you're doing is sending them to, you know, Mike Maples at Floodgate or, you know, somebody, you know, Josh Koppelman at first round, you got to know when to send it to Maples and when to send it to Koppelman. Exactly. Um, so this is key. This is key. And, and also, so these funds with, with Nortel and now these other corporates, these are two and 20 vehicles or is yeah, normal 220 vehicles. Um, yeah. Normal 220 vehicles. And, and so far we've done really well. I mean, like our first fund, which is a 26 official institutional fund, which is 2016 with the one LP. I think we've already distributed over half the capital. I mean, and, okay. and, uh, implied, which is probably top decile or whatever of the, uh, 2016 vintage funds. Yeah, especially and, for the stage uh, you're investing really in. Well. At that stage, yeah. you can take like the early hits are often aqua hire team by Tuckins, where a lot of exactly. the economics, I mean, I mean, I mean, you would know it if anyone, a lot of the economics on those exits are going to the founders. And you, you, you're almost like, what? I thought, I thought the investor, I thought the dark side was the evil venture capitalist. <laughs> Whereas you literally see, you know, we're supporting him, the amount of time you could put into them and then they get sign-on bonuses, they get negotiated or else they're not going to buy them. And they want the founders, yeah. you know, when it's at that stage, yeah. when it's at that stage, but it's- Yeah, um, because the, exactly, because they, exactly. And actually hire, they don't want the VCs, <laughs> they want the founders. <laughs> Full yeah, I know. So what, what happens is we do a lot of secondaries on the way up. Um, when we think, because we own small percentages, there's no negative signaling if we exit. And if we see that a company is doing you know, like if we're going to be a Ketenex after a year or two, um, the and and the valuation we think is ahead of where it should be, we sell we typically sell fifty percent, and that's why yeah. our net that's why our IRR is so high. Frankly, that's, that's, that's why that's your the DPI that's why your DPI yeah. is as good as it is. You're, you're distributed, to and that's why your IRR is also high because we we distribute very quickly. Like we we start getting exits very quickly, and which which leads to high DPI and high IRR because you start to get capital and exits very quickly. Now, typically our philosophy is when we choose to sell, we try to sell 50%. So we, we play the upside of the rest, it does really well, and we've sold 50% in that round. And by the way, we because we look at each follow-on independently, it may very well be that we sell in the B and we buy in the C, right? <laughs> like if, uh, if we think the B valuation is way ahead of traction, but then- Oh, the C, I see what you're saying. The C on a risk-adjusted basis is a because the decision to sell. First of all, we are not the sellers. I mean, it doesn't work that way. The very best companies, the VCs around the table, say we would like more ownership. Would you like to sell? Right. So it's it's never driven by us. 
It's never us saying, oh, because otherwise, obviously, we'd love to sell the companies that are not doing well. That never happens. Uh, it's always the companies that are doing the best where, where there are secondary opportunities. You know, there's a, a founder is raising, he's doing really well. Sequoia, Great Luck, and Dreesen all want to invest. They all want 15% minimum because of their fund rules. The founder doesn't want 45% dilution. He says, I'll take 30% dilution by buy early stage investors. So they actually come to us and ask us a favor yeah. to buy our position. And we do an evaluation. What do we think, given what we know, should we be investing? Should we be doubling down or should we be selling? And, and often the very best companies, the Flexports, the Rappies, those companies, we actually sell 50% on the way up because the, the it makes sense on a risk-adjusted basis for us. And also because it's so, so much personal capital that we need to recycle because the, we need to keep investing every year. Um, you know, most of the returns come from our own money, not from the fees. I mean, the fees on the fee-based side, we're, we're barely break even now. And, and that's after like, I don't know, you know, five years of running a fund and like 22 years of investing where our cost structure is like four or five million a year. And for the longest time, we, you know, we had two million fees a year or whatever, nothing. So we were subsidizing the structure. Um, yeah, I think yeah. it's interesting. So Fabrice, I think that you really have maintained the perspective of an angel investing your own personal capital throughout your journey here. And a lot of VCs, including me, like Chapter 10 of my first book was The Ladder to Liquidity, where I was making the case for founder liquidity and even early angel investor who can recycle and, and, yep. all, and all those things. When even still, I find New York to be pretty hostile towards secondaries compared to the Valley, yep. where you know people want to see the founder get secured with their life so they don't sell early and they go for that big, they're getting aligned you, you know, for the exit. But um, when you're investing other people's money to sell too early, We've thought 20% when it's really high and then don't hit 50. And the truth is I've had trouble doing it because I just want my, my, my definitive numbers to not be dampened at all. But if you're really investing a lot of your own money, I could see you're like, hey, man, I got to recycle some money out. There's another thing just to clarify what I want to make sure all of our listeners here understood is that um, so if you, if, you, if you take a big investment, you make a big bet risky early. Now Andreessen and everybody wants in and you're selling 50% and then you double down in the next one. Somebody might've gotten lost there, but it makes sense to me, you know, listening to you explain it, that they might have gotten a valuation that was just spicy and they haven't grown into that valuation yet. Like literally investors are saying, look, this is crazy to be investing at a 250 million pre on a company with that just went from one to 8 million in revenue. But we believe it'll grow into it. And so if you're selling 50% at that moment, and then later they do a more sensible priced round with your expertise of slicing the different types of revenue from net revenue to SaaS revenue, you're like, hey, this is actually a bargain at 500 million. Um, considering exactly. how- like if, if they quadrupled the business from whatever, quintupled and they grew into the numbers, the next round is marginally more expensive. We, we do it. It's kind of like the YC strategy we have. Like it's, it's a different story, but in Y Combinator, the valuations are, are really high. And so what we've often been doing is we, we go there, we identify the companies we really like. We don't invest in YC, but we follow up nine months later before they race to the next round. And maybe they want a seed extension and we'll invest 
essentially at like like maybe the YC pre-mining on nothing was 12 or 15. And the next round will be at 14, but with real traction. And half the companies died or pivoted or whatever. And so we don't do those. And so on a risk-adjusted basis, you're better off paying 20% more nine months later than paying the crazy YC price uh, before before there's anything proven. Yeah, you know, I'm looking for a slide I've got that I made that shows uh, when companies are overvalued and when they're not. Here, let me make me the host again, if you would. Yep, I'll do that right now. So, so, so can you see the screen there? Yep. So basically, on if in the beginning it shows angel precede, if you're low, that's good. If you're high, you're overpaying. So we think if you I come agree. in and if you come in like Ron Conway, right side capital management and FJ labs saying, I'm ready to write a check after two calls, you're probably getting a good deal, but you better be good at this and get to a certain level of diversification at the demo day of like why combinator, you know, people were investing during every Russian is logged in on these things. Now with COVID you are really paying a premium. If you're following up with those companies and maybe you, you have to know that this, the CEO network likes you, that you're writing checks like you are, you, you can track them. And then in the late seed, which is what a series A used to be. Yep. You know, cause the funds got super sized. So a series A, like a late seed has got hundred K MRR, 1.2 million ARR, a pipeline that can be qualified. That's tipping. You're actually getting, you're getting good value for money through to the series A, by the time you get to series B, you know, it starts to look like uh, a lot of people all of a sudden want to be in this deal. And there's a lot of good kind yeah, of- There's a lot of money in the late stage these days. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and they probably had people at the demo day, they've been tracking that company too. They're on PitchBook looking at all this stuff. And then of course, you've got these people that are like SPVs out of Chicago that want to get a little SpaceX. Yeah, you know, and then and then and then that goes into uh, you're really overpaying, you know, to get in late. And my last thing is that what happens when there's an economic shift, and what you see here is that historically people want to invest even later stage, and then of course the IPO is going to be a lower price than that last yeah. secondary or late stage growth. Let me let me stop sharing. So that's a little bit of you know my perspective, our perspective yeah, on. Um, no, no, totally agree. I mean, look, we it's better to be in the seed extension than to be in the seed. Very often, the, the more is proven, you pay barely more. Um, now, of course, with that philosophy, though, you miss the very best deals. Uh, the very very best deals, you know, like the, their A is going to look like a B. Their C might look like an A. I mean, the very the ones that are like completely crushing it. But frankly, that's okay. I, I, I play Moneyball. I don't play Powerball. I'm not looking at the lottery ticket. The company is doing a thousand X. We've actually made money in 50% of the exits we've had. So, which is, you know, given how early we invest is rather exceptional. And that's because of our really strong focus on union economics. Right, right, right. And so, you know, some closing questions for you. You have more experience than most people I talk to on launching classifieds in Pakistan or classifieds in Russia yep. and uh, Brazil in the same year even. Um, what's your experience on heart transplant failure or success? So like when something works, something works in one country, doesn't mean like, like superhuman is a great investment. Yep. And I was very early and, and it shows like, oh my God, my best deals are when I'm early. And it confuses all your 
plans on portfolio construction, but it would never work in China because Gmail is blocked yeah. and they don't even use email. They're all using WeChat. So <laughs> some things would are very clear would not work. Tell us about some of your experience of knowing when something does or doesn't work in another country. Like if the CPMs are really low in Pakistan, yeah. are confiant from New York, doesn't even come into unit economics of being worth paying for. Sure. Whereas in Japan, you know, we're taking them to Japan. Yeah, so most things that'll work in the US will more work in most other countries. And if a category is large enough and interesting enough, the it's good actually to fundamental, fundamentally humans are kind of the same everywhere. We we want to be entertained. We want to communicate and socialize. We 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 want to have a sense of meaning and purpose in our life. And so, to the extent that ideas fulfill those needs, they're going to be successful kind of everywhere. And and you see in everywhere around the world, you have a classified society. Everywhere around the world, you have a social network. Everywhere around the world, you have a a, a big e-commerce site or in marketplace companies and food, and food delivery, et cetera. So the fundamental, the categories are kind of the same and the, and the names may change. It may be different companies. And by the way, the approaches may also very much change the, because of the regulatory environment, the payment infrastructure, et cetera. But like the, the, the large ideas are commonly true everywhere. And so in the US, you, I mean, you can actually even do the opposite. You can take ideas that work in the rest of the world, bring them to the U.S., except you need to be more careful there because if you're taking ideas from markets where cost of labor is really low, it, the model, the union economics may not work in the U.S. We're working the CACs are really low because the CPMs are very low in, in emerging markets and way they're not in the U.S., that the same may not be true. So it's it's harder to bring ideas, though there are some that would work from you know China to the U.S. or or, or, or Europe to the U.S., though, though it's less common. But... U.S. to the rest of the world, I think, is a very common uh, idea that works and and that people should, that if you're ideating is a, is a very valid model of ideation. I think there are four ways I come up with business ideas. This is one of them. And in general, I'd rather invest in the U.S. than the rest of the world. But in the rest of the world, a copy of a U.S. idea, great. I mean, adaptation is probably the better word than copy. The, the, the question is, when is the right time? And also some ideas, the best player to do them is the, is the U.S. player because they have global network effects. Though that's not true of most companies, by the way. Most companies have national network effects, but not global network effects. And so right. it doesn't actually and, – and by the way, my main recommendation to U.S. companies is do not go global. The, the, 5%, the distraction of opening an office in London it, – it, it's going to take your eye off the ball in the U.S., and the upside scenario is not worth it. Like if you – if you're at 100 million in the U.S., it's easier to go from 100 million to 200 million in the U.S. and zero to 100 anywhere else. It's true at a billion. It's true at 10 billion. Maybe there's a point uh, where you're you're hitting like an inflection curve, like a logarithmic growth, and it's no longer true. And and at that point, either buy or go international. But for the most part, do not go abroad. Like if if Uber could have a do-over and just win the U.S. and make sure Lyft doesn't exist or kill them or buy or buy them and not do the rest of the world, they'd probably be in a better position and stronger position than they are today with all the distraction that they took by going and fighting in all these territories and all the burn and dilution it entails. And the exception to that rule is if you're using user-generated content. You know, if you're Facebook, go global. If you're Instagram, go global. If you're Wikipedia or, in our case, OLX, go global. But if you have like supply chains, regulatory battles, like payment, Uber. regulatory rules, et cetera, I frankly don't go global. When the US, it's a, it's a big enough market and you're going to be happy. Now, if you're a, a founder in the rest of the world, yeah, 
at what point is the right time to look at the breakouts? Hard to tell. I, it, for us, it used to be unless something reached like 100 million value or revenues, we would look at it. Uh, maybe there's a way to identify the real breakouts earlier for, for, to, to see if we should do them in the rest of the world. Not a core focus for us, to be honest. So I, I don't spend that much time thinking about it. But yes, things that work in, in one country will typically work in other countries. And Fabrice, closing question, I'll let you go. Um, tell us about this podcast or this streaming show of yours. You know, COVID has now got you to do everything you've been procrastinating about for the last many years, I'm sure. Yeah, that, I, first of all, it's, it's exactly that. All the things I've been needing to do, like redesign the, my blog, uh, write more, read more, create this live streaming show. So I thought long and hard about like, if I was 23-year-old me starting my very first venture back company, what is it that I would like to know? And is it is there a way to get, to get it out there? And I'm like, you know, I love all the podcasts that people are, are creating. It's giving a really good sense of people's journeys and stories and lessons learned. But distilling the information in, a, in an effective way is kind of, is not really well done. And on YouTube, mm-hmm. I think the quality it's high production values but low quality content. Like so, I'm like, okay, can I create a show where every week I create a piece of content specific on one topic on something I wish I knew when I was a founder 20, when I founded my first venture back companies 22 years ago. And it's everything from like, how do I come up with a business, a startup idea? How do I evaluate if the startup idea is any good? How do I do landing page analysis? How do I pick the right business model? How do I fundraise? Uh, what are the current thesis or trends in the market right now? And, and, and it's, so it's not the traditional live streaming show or podcast of like having a guest come and talk about their life experiences. It may have its guests maybe to speak about a specific topic like yeah. the history of venture capital and how venture capital works as opposed to, you know, their story. Yeah. So it sounds like, um, I mean, I've written three books and I think it's important to, and we've spoken about this before, that um, it's important to design the book and, and have like a really good outline. And for me, I've learned to suppress the urge to start writing full sentences and just keep that outline going for years. Exactly. As as I bump into something, oh, information rights, if I had them, I might be able to do a secondary. I can't do a secondary without information rights. And and what founder thinks he's got to negotiate permanent information rights in a series A, he'll never get fired and alienated from the company. You know, so like little nuggets, if you let time go by, just put it on the outline. It sounds like rather than have these sort of unplanned accidental podcast conversations, if you premeditate and map out, this is what the founder needs to to go through. And especially for your market, and it even helps with your brand. If they're like, my God, this guy really knows marketplaces, Um, like down to the level of landing page discussion for 40 minutes or something. How to build an MVP for 20K, right? Like this, that was one of the topics. And, And I'm trying to target not just marketplace founders, but like, aspiring and existing startup CEOs. So again, it's not for everyone. It's not for if you want to build your SMB. It's really if you want to build a, a, a venture-backed company. Everything you should know, I think, because I don't think there's a resource for that out there. Um, if it, it frankly should really be a YouTube series rather than a live streaming show, but it requires production values and, and, and a, amount of time and money I'm not willing to dedicate to it. So by forcing myself to do it a weekly show it's like forcing me to create the content for that week and, and it's yeah. forcing function to 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 crystallize my thinking and and yeah it's uh playing with unicorns is every thursday at noon on every streaming channel uh probably easiest to watch it either on youtube or twitch 
Okay, and I'll include something in the show notes. Send me something so I can give people details on on how to check that out. 